Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Love Doctor Podcast, research-informed advice that can lubricate any conversation about sex. My name is Dr. Leah Tidy, and I'm glad to have you here. Today on the show, I'm answering your questions about bi erasure and what to do if you and your partner have different levels of sexual desire. I also share my interview with Dr. Lori Brado all about low desire, particularly in women, what the media tells us about sex, and how mindfulness just might be the answer to a lot of our sexual issues. But first, today in sex. Jade eggs are not going to fix your sex life. But Gwyneth Paltrow would like us to believe that. In my interview with Dr. Lori Brado later on in the episode, we talk about the power of celebrity to sell us things in terms of our sexual health and trying to tell us that we are broken in some way. This also extends to social media influencers who are starting to do the same thing and include some form of sponsored content to try and sell us things to fix us, right? So in this article that Gwyneth Paltrow has all about jade eggs and how they are so magnificent in realigning your chi and talking about their vaginal health, yeah, all of it is BS. Let me read you a section of it. Why would someone want to use a jade egg? As the article says, the strictly guarded secret of Chinese royalty in antiquity, queens and concubines use them to stay in shape for emperors. Jade eggs harness the power of energy work, crystal healing, and Kegel-like physical exercise. Fans say regular use increases chi, orgasms, vaginal muscle tone, hormonal balance, and feminine energy in general. Putting aside so many other things in terms of misogyny and also cultural appropriation that's happening in that quote itself, it's also totally not based in science. What this is really preying on is social media constantly telling us that our bodies should be groomed and trained in certain ways in order to fix them. I know that Gwyneth Paltrow a few years ago talked about vaginal steaming. Again, something please do not do. But the fact that celebrities feel like they can promote these things without consequence is something that's really difficult for folks like myself as sexual health educators to combat, especially when millions and millions of people buy into this. One of the other things that comes up in this article about the jade egg is questions about if the egg can get stuck. This is what it says. This is a common question that gets asked, and she says, No, it can't get lost, but these ones have a hole drilled in them, which you can then thread with unwaxed floss to make it easier to take out and to generally ease any anxiety about it, which, I'll tell you, a lot of people have. So the fact that not only are you putting something into your body, which is probably not body safe, and that you're going to drill a hole into it, that is a breeding ground for bacteria. So no, please don't be doing that. The other thing that they don't address here, which I find very frustrating, is that the vagina is not some magical hole that things will get lost in. At the top of it, we have the cervix that leads into the uterus and No, it's not going to magically come up through the stomach and you'll cough out this jade egg. But away from the jade egg, these types of products prey on people's sexual insecurities. And we're not teaching folks to be media literate or to be critically engaged with what they're consuming. Sponsored content is becoming a really sneaky way for folks to sell us stuff under the guise of expertise. And this seems to be in the zeitgeist right now, because I just watched John Oliver's episode 13 of Last Week Tonight, and it's all about local TV stations in the U.S. bringing on supposed experts who are really just doing integrated ads to sell you stuff. Here's my favorite. If they are letting someone buy their way onto their channel and present something as real, that it's not, in fact, total nonsense. Because right now, it's far too easy to make a ridiculous product that makes outlandish claims and get it onto local TV. And the reason I know that is, we did. We started a company called Venus Inventions and created something called The Venus Fail, an absurd medical product based on technology that absolutely doesn't exist. We set up this website and even hired an actress to brandigrate the shit out of The Venus Fail into shows it had no business being on. Did it work? I don't know. You tell me, ABC4 Utah. I am so excited to talk with Erica Hernandez with the Venus Veil, a revolutionary new product on the line. What exactly is it? I'm so intrigued. 
I'm so glad you are intrigued. So this is the Venus Veil. It is the world's first sexual health blanket. Yep. That was on ABC4 last Friday. And I would love to tell you that it was difficult to get on, but it really wasn't. And remember, that's their chief medical correspondent. And it seems striking that she didn't have any follow-ups on claims that we made about the veil that you would hope a medical correspondent would immediately take issue with. The veil is being designed with the hope that it will precisely draw out the natural alkaline undercurrents of the vagina and initiate a low-grade state of what we call micro-death, which sounds incredibly scary, but that's actually just restarting that area's natural life cycle. It's using this field of magnetogenetics I was talking about and also a technology that's been around for a really long time that was pioneered in Germany about 80 years ago. So this is full of cutting-edge technology, but it just looks like a blanket. Yeah, it does. And that's because it is. It is just a blanket. Now, I get it that we want to be able to buy something to help us with our sex lives, especially if we are struggling with desire or if we feel self-conscious about our bodies. But buying a jade egg or a sex blanket that have no foundation in science, that's not going to get us there. And thank goodness I have Dr. Lori Brado with me today to share some of those ways that are actually based in science and don't require just three payments of as low as $19.99. But before we get to that interview, let's get to your calls. Hello, Leah. I was just hoping that you might be able to help me with a question that I have. So me and my boyfriend, we've been together for years, and we've obviously had a lot of issues and... Right now, we're probably doing the best that we've done in a long time. But one of the things that we always had problems with was sex because he's always very horny. And at a certain point, we just weren't even really speaking. It felt more like we were roommates, so it was very hard. But now we're doing great, and I'm just wondering if there's any way that I can become more comfortable um, trying to have sex regularly or just understanding, I guess, more of why it's so difficult. Um, Please let me know. Thank you. Thank you for this question. And I guess some questions that I have for you to maybe think about. I want to know, so you've been in this relationship for many years now, and you said that you had some real issues and struggles in the past, but now it has changed. I want to know what changed? What made that shift from living together as roommates, as you said, into more of romantic partners, and being able to communicate with each other. That would be something really interesting to investigate what that shift was, and also thinking about sometimes in our relationships, we can get caught into cycles that maybe aren't actually that healthy. So to your first question, there can definitely be differences in sexual desire. Some people talk about this as sexual compatibility and how much people think that they want to be having sex, and maybe their partner has a different idea on what works for them. This comes down to having an honest conversation with your partner, multiple conversations with your partner about what those expectations are and what each of you are interested in sexually. I would highly recommend reading Come As You Are by Dr. Emily Nagoski, and there's even a new one that just came out this year. What Dr. Nagoski talks about, which is really important, is turning off the inhibitors or the brakes, right? The things that shut off our sexual desire, things that stop us from feeling in the mood to engage in sex. And then turning on the accelerators, the things that actually get us excited and wanting to engage in sex. This book, coupled with the conversation that I have with Dr. Brado later in this episode about desire... I think it'll be really good for you to listen and potentially listen with your partner so you can have conversations about desire. Quite often, we don't feel spontaneous desire. I know that's what we're shown so often in TV shows and media, but that's not actually how desire works. And to the other part of your question about becoming more comfortable with sex, this is something that has to be a part of your own journey and not just something that you're doing to satisfy a sexual partner. Are you comfortable masturbating and touching yourself? Are you comfortable in your own pleasure and know what brings you pleasure and joy when it comes to sexuality? Thinking about those things and what works for you and your body, if you start feeling more comfortable, then hopefully that will translate into partnered sex as well. 
but this shouldn't be trying to conform your sexual desires and pleasure to match that of your sexual partners. It's the two of you together figuring out what works for me and then how can we come together and see how that can evolve. I also want to share a resource, and I'm not saying that this sounds like a toxic relationship, but I think we get caught up into these romances, and especially in terms of TV, movie, media, the ways that they show us that we should be in love, how romantic relationships, how they should evolve, and what sexual desire should look like. So the sensible sex book, Dr. Wendasha Jenkins-Hall, if you aren't already following them on Instagram, I highly recommend it. They just posted the other day something called Five Ways TV Slash Movies Normalize Toxic Romance. And I think these are really important things for all of us to consider. One of the first ones that she talks about is the idea that love is all you need to overcome any problems or incompatibilities. And I can understand that people might think that love is all you need. But actually, what about timing? What about your career goals and aspirations? What about if you are sexually incompatible with each other? Is this going to create more tension throughout your relationship? Love, of course, is a strong foundation for a relationship, but it doesn't mean that these other aspects aren't also important. The second one that she talks about is how one should meet their partner's every physical and emotional need. It's impossible for us to completely fit those needs for our partners and vice versa. We shouldn't have that expectation on ourselves to be everything to someone else, and we shouldn't expect them to be that for us. Knowing that there are physical or sexual needs that we can get on our own, either through masturbating and sometimes that we can get with our partners, creating that distinction might actually help. So if your partner is feeling really horny, then maybe they have some time where they watch ethical porn or they masturbate or do something else like that. So the pressure isn't always on you to have partner sex, especially when you aren't into it. You're not feeling it. This also extends to our emotional needs. We can't rely on our partner to meet every single emotional need that we have. That's why we have friends and family and colleagues and people who we can fully engage with. The third one that she talks about is accepts jealousy as a strong measure of love. Jealousy is a complex emotion, and I actually talk about this earlier on in this season with Cassandra Heap about how jealousy can be a really important emotion to take note of in relationships because maybe that's signifying that something is happening. But we shouldn't just accept jealousy without digging into where is that coming from and what can I do to address it? And not just as, oh my gosh, I must love this person so much if I am feeling really jealous or they are very jealous or possessive over us. The fourth one is that friends of the opposite sex are a threat to relationships as men and women cannot be friends without sexual tension. Yeah, this is not true. That could be a whole other podcast episode topic on its own, so I'm going to leave it there, but let me know if you have questions about that or if that might be a topic that you would be interested in exploring here on this podcast. And five, the last one is, tolerating abuse and manipulation, especially if you're a woman, is how one proves their worth and loyalty. No, this is blatantly untrue. Going through tough times together is something that, yes, can strengthen a relationship if you stand by each other. But if there is abuse or manipulation or guilt built into that, then that is not the precursor of a healthy relationship. Just because you've gone through maybe some BS together doesn't mean that you owe it to each other to be together. The last thought that I want to leave you with is something that Dan Savage talks about in the Savage Lovecast and how everything in a sexual and romantic relationship, in any relationship, It requires consent. If you're going to have sex with each other, what that's going to look like, all of these things require conversations and consent. The only thing in a relationship that doesn't require consent is when someone decides to leave that relationship. I'm not telling you to leave your partner. I'm wanting you to think about how do we build healthy relationships and not to normalize a lot of these toxic things and tolerating issues and abuse that may have come up. I don't know what the issues were before in your past, but I think that having some clear conversations about how has that changed over time? How have you gotten to the place you are now? And how do you get to the place that you want to be in the future? I hope that's helpful. I've probably left you with so many questions, but good luck and give me a call back if you have any thoughts or if you have a follow-up. Hi, Leah. As someone who identifies as bisexual, 
I have experienced by erasure, especially now that I am married to a man. Have you ever experienced it? If so, how do you deal with it? Thank you and love your show. Thank you for your question. And I'm sorry that you have experienced by erasure. I think it is unfortunately quite common for folks, especially if they are in opposite sex relationships. So as you said, you and I are in very similar situations, being bi folks married to men and people thinking that we are straight by default. So bi erasure, for folks who don't know, is the idea that bisexual identity is not seen. It is silenced in some way, especially when people end up in monogamous uh, relationships with an opposite sex partner. And we don't have a lot of examples of bisexual folks in media or in TV shows, because sometimes it can be hard to show without that person having multiple partners. Again, as we've talked about on this show, not everyone who is bisexual is interested in having multiple sexual partners or romantic partners at a time, but it does get hard for folks to understand that just because you are in a relationship with someone of the opposite sex doesn't mean that your bisexual identity is any less valid. So when I experience that in my day-to-day life, the hard thing is it really depends. In my own work, when I'm in a professional setting and when I'm introducing myself, especially when I start teaching a new class or if I'm with a new group of students that I'm working with, I do say that I'm bisexual. Sometimes I'll mention that I'm married to a man and sometimes I won't. But I think it's important as an educator for me to locate myself For people to know this is the perspective that I'm coming from and knowing that there's going to be multitude of perspectives that I can't hold, but I'm going to try and hold space for. In more personal settings, it can be really hard to not feel like your identity is erased, especially once you are married. I have found over the years that the more open I am about being bisexual, especially around friends and family, there are definitely questions that I get about that no longer being relevant now that I'm married to Levi. I think one of the things that we can do is to educate the people that we love and care for. The people who know and love us are more likely to receive opinions that are different from their own if it comes from someone that they love and respect. So for me, when it comes to my family or friends, if they make some sort of biphobic comment or some straight about or some comment about me being straight or otherwise, I just gently correct them and then maybe use that as a moment to briefly educate. But at the same time, you don't want to be a walking PSA. You have to know when that time is right for you. So I'm not sure if that's the best answer that you are looking for, caller. Really, it depends on the situation and how comfortable you feel in being the person to educate. I recognize that that can be really tiresome when it's on the person whose identity that that is to constantly be educating other people about it. I think one of the other things that we can do is on our social media, we can share resources and quotes that talk about bisexuality in open ways and ways that don't shame or create stereotypes about folks who are bisexual. That might be simply sharing a story or retweeting something and just finding ways to engage people in conversations. Doesn't necessarily have to be about our own personal identities, but how are we starting a larger conversation online to get folks asking those questions and being engaged in talking about bisexuality, something that we can normalize. And as we come into the final days of Pride Month, it is actually really important to know that bisexual folks actually make up the largest percentage of the LGBTQ plus community. I talk more about this community and how LGBTQ is not an acronym, but actually an initialization in the next episode of the podcast, where I interview Chris Angel Murphy from Gender Sexuality Info. I hope that is helpful to you, caller, and look forward to that next episode. I think it will answer a lot of your questions also about allyship and speaking truth to our experiences. Now, before we get to the interview, I just want to share a brief review. This one says, hey, I don't have a question, but just wanted to say I really enjoyed listening to your podcast. Just listen to the episode about HIV and COVID being racist and its effects on communities. Thank you so much for that review, caller. Um, I'm really glad that you enjoyed that episode. That is episode one of season two, where I interview Dr. Ronaldo Walcott all about HIV and COVID-19. Um, and we also talk about black masculinity and queer identities. If you have a review for the show or comments that you want to make, please feel free to send me an email at thelovedoctorpodcast at gmail.com 
or um, wherever you listen to your podcast, leave a review and tell me what you thought of this episode. And now the interview with Dr. Lori Brado. Dr. Lori Brado is the director of the UBC Sexual Health Laboratory. She's also the Canada Research Chair in Women's Sexual Health, a professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at UBC, and is the Executive Director of Women's Health Research Institute. She is also the author of Better Sex Through Mindfulness, How Women Can Cultivate Desire. It was such an honor to interview her, especially since she is someone I cited many, many times in my own PhD research. And even with all of these accolades and accomplishments attached to her name, Lori was so down to earth and such a pleasure to talk to. So here it is. Good morning, Dr. Brado. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me, Leah. So maybe let's start. Um, uh, tell me a bit about yourself. I, there, there's a lot to cover. And I will have a full introduction of you in the podcast as well, because there are many accolades to add to your name. But maybe starting with a bit about yourself and uh, your work on debunking desire. Great. So I'm a registered psychologist by training, a professor in the University of British Columbia in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Um, I'm fortunate to hold a Canada Research Chair, which allows me to spend a good part of my time doing research on the nature of sexual desire and also on its treatments. And I also am the executive director of a provincial women's health research institute in British Columbia. And so in that role, we support a lot of the research on women's health that's happening across all, all types of research within, within BC. Mm -hmm. That's excellent. And I was listening to your interview before on uh, sex and psychology of just how you were saying, like, when you first came to this work, there wasn't a lot of strong signs underpinning, especially uh, talking about women's desire and things like that. And you really saw that niche and were like, I am going to fulfill this. Like, as, as a scientist, as an academic, as a woman, this is really important work to undertake. So yeah, I really uh, appreciate that. Of, and then that's kind of the hope with academia, right? That we're like, oh, there's this gap. I'm going to work to address this with all the skills that I have. Yeah, I mean, that's essentially what we do as scientists is we become intrigued by what we don't know. Um, we also become very, very excited about when there are inconsistent findings, controversies, because it's an opportunity to use the skills of science to really ask questions in a sophisticated way and try and get some answers. And so definitely in the domain of sexual desire, which we've been reading about, speaking about for centuries, yet the science really trying to understand the nature of sexual desire, uh, particularly in women, is really quite new. It's not something that um, our funding agencies have spent a lot of investment in trying to understand desire until more recently. And I think we can probably thank the approval of Viagra for treatment of erectile dysfunction, that really, I think, was when um, much more attention what be became devoted to understanding women's sexual health conditions. Absolutely. So let's, let's talk a bit about debunking desire and um, why you thought it was important to create this campaign about low sexual desire in women. Mm -hmm. So if, if you were to do a Google search on treatment for low desire, so first of all, low desire is the most common sexual complaint, regardless of a person's gender. So men, women, non-binary, trans individuals um, struggling with interest in, in sex, low motivation for sex, libido gone is the most common sexual concern. And so understandably, people turn to online because in part, there's a lot of embarrassment to talk about it. Most people who struggle with low desire don't seek help or talk to a care provider for a variety of reasons. Uh, we can talk more about that later. But when one does a Google search on treatment for low desire, the top, when I last did this, the top five hits that came up pointed to treatments that were not only not supported by scientific evidence, but might potentially be harmful. So various homeopathic kinds of, of remedies and strategies and things like that, which, um, you know, to the average person who might do that search, who doesn't, who isn't a scientist themselves and doesn't have access to the scientific literature to be able to read what has been studied 
what is shown to be effective, what isn't, what are the side effects. That person would read this top five list and start kind of working down the list as a, as a way of improving their concerns with low desire. So it really highlights the, the struggle that we have in knowledge translation. And that is, how do we get scientific findings out in a way uh, that can make a meaningful difference, whether that's um, you know, in a way that steers policy or in a way that improves clinical programs and practices, or just uh, quite frankly, in a way that lands into the hands of people who can benefit. So this whole domain of knowledge translation is a set of um, method methodologies that helps us as scientists make sure that we get science out uh, and so that people have access to it. So that was really the the impetus for why we designed Debunking Desire. Well, and I you touch on something there of so often when you find like these home remedies or things, it's all on the premise of you are broken in some way and let us fix you. And like you said, not not supported by scientific evidence and really preys on people's insecurities. And I think women in particular and folks with vulvas so much of trying to look or behave in a certain way, and especially in a you know, in a highly sexualized through a male gaze culture. That's something that's that's very difficult to unpack if you're like, oh, well, these remedies seem to work or if this is the thing that's come up on Google, somebody must have used them and it must have worked. Or if like Gwyneth Paltrow is saying that it's great, maybe I should try it. And you're like, okay, how do we take a step back and actually listen to the researchers and the scientists who have who have done the work to show us what can actually help us instead of, you know, pouring our money into remedies that you know, really, they're going to keep telling us that we're broken. So we keep buying things to try and fix it. Yeah, the the celebrity uh, appeal is fascinating to me, how a celebrity um, can make a comment about something working, and it garner millions and millions of hits and shares and people will buy the product uh, without really questioning the science. But really, the tr the trust quotient is with the person, right? Not necessarily with the science behind it. And it's fascinating to me, but also an opportunity, I think, for us as scientists to figure out, like, what is that formula that, that needs unlocking that we can learn from? Is it that scientists need to put themselves out there in social media more? Do we need a celebrity scientist, a champion out there? Yeah. Or <laughs> uh, the approach that we've done is, we start to infiltrate that same space that celebrities are infiltrating, but we infil infiltrate it with science. It is fascinating the number of people that bought jade eggs for $300 because um, of, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow's promise that they would unlock libido and fix your hormones. And uh, of course, none of that is scientifically proven at all. In fact, there's potentially harms of inserting jade eggs into your, into your vagina. Uh, so it's, it's absolutely fascinating just how much appeal those, uh, that kind of celebrity culture around health strategies can garner. Mm -hmm. Well, there's, I think there's also like a social responsibility there that I think some celebrities, you know, are, are very aware of it because a lot of them, that's how they would, would make their money if they're being endorsed by certain things. But yeah, really, difficult when you think, oh, this one thing has worked for me in my particular context, and then trying to apply that to millions of people. We're like, we know that that's not how it works. And when it comes to like thinking about our desire or managing stress, like there's all different ways that work for us as individuals as well. So maybe let's, let's talk about a bit of those common misconceptions about desire and then how we can start unpacking that of being like, actually, that isn't true. So what do people assume about desire and, and what do we get wrong about it? Yeah. Um, great question. I mean, there's so many myths and I, I certainly hear them as a psychologist who sees people in my clinical practice who come in struggling with their low desire, but it's also been a question that's been uh, studied in the scientific literature. So in no particular order, <laughs> other than uh, the, the, they're coming to my memory, but a, a very, very common one is that sexual desire should be spontaneous. Mm -hmm. This notion that desire should hit you out of the blue, right? You're sort of walking through your day, minding your own business, and boom, you suddenly feel in the mood for sex, 
And that then leads you to then seek out your sexual partner or a sexual partner um, so that the desire can make its way into behavior and then arousal and then orgasm, et cetera. So um, not scientifically supported whatsoever. In fact, far more evidence that desire for a lot of people is not what instigates a sexual interaction, Um, that for a lot of people, they initiate sex or they agree to sex uh, for other reasons that sometimes have nothing to do with their desire. So maybe it's, you know, they want to feel close to a partner or they want to get to sleep or it's ritual, it's habit. It's a way to celebrate a birthday. Um, They want to feel in the mood or they want to get that orgasm, even though in the moment they're not feeling desire. So there's a lot more evidence that suggests that people don't go into a sexual encounter with desire, but desire can emerge as the sexual encounter starts to unfold. So that's a second myth that needs debunking this notion that desire comes first And that then paves the way for behavior and arousal and orgasm and satisfaction. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot more evidence um, uh, that that originally started with this idea of kind of a circular sexual response cycle uh, by Dr. Rosemary Basson, but since then has really been taken up and studied by a lot of researchers around the world. So yeah, to a listener who feels like um, there's something wrong with them because they don't feel desire before a sexual encounter. Nope, there's nothing wrong with you. Perfectly normal, perfectly healthy. And it's an opportunity to really think about what are your own reasons to engage in sex. So there's another myth, um, the myth that one should have a reason to to engage in sex, right? Of course, since television and, and popular media suggests that well, you have sex because you have desire. No, people often deliberately think of their reasons because they may not be in the mood for sex at the outset. So uh, deliberately contemplating what what's in it for me? What are my reasons? What's on the other side of this encounter that could be a motivator for me to uh, mm-hmm. either accept a partner's invitations or initiate uh, on my own? Um, I'll throw in one last myth just because it's so popular um, and that is that planned sex is dry and clinical and boring and sex should be unplanned and spontaneous. Um, no, 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 no. What else <laughs> do you do in your life that's important and meaningful that's not planned? You know, you'd be hard pressed to find to find anything really. So if we can think about does, um, sexual activity as something that we have reasons for, we anticipate we plan for it, we actually have a day in mind, then it affords a lot more time for anticipation, um, planning what it's going to look like, preparing oneself so that the sex itself is better. So definitely planned sex is better sex, I would say. Absolutely. Well, and I think it helps you navigate certain things about if you've planned that, okay, so we're having sex on Thursday night, let's say, then you know, okay, what are the things that will set the context for me to be in the mood to be excited for this situation? But then you also think around the context of safer sex. If it's always spontaneous sex that we're, again, seeing in media and being promoted, how often do you see negotiations or discussions about have you been tested for sexually transmitted infections? What kind of birth control options are we using? Right. And so having planned sex in that way can help reduce the stress and worry about those other things. So then you can actually dig into like the pleasure and the enjoyment itself because you're like, oh, okay, I'm not concerned about in the back of my mind, like, oh, like, should we have talked about STIs first? Or is a condom really going to be the best? Or should I have gotten an IUD? Or just having those open conversations, I think, not only will translate into like anticipation for the sex itself, but also just feeling more present in the moment when you are actually engaging in that sexual experience. That's so good. I think you you hit the nail on the head of so many of those things that I I hear from my listeners quite often of being like, I'm broken. There's something wrong with my relationship because I don't feel the spontaneous desire for my partner um, anymore, like especially like I did at the beginning. And so trying to tell people, I'm like, well, I don't know any uh, couple who've been together for a long time who just spontaneously feel desire for each other throughout their relationship and knowing that there's going to be ebbs and flows. That's such, such an important aspect of that. Yeah. 
Leah, if I can just add on the other thing that you're highlighting, especially around having those conversations about planning for safer sex and STIs, et cetera, um, really points to the importance of sexual communication. Mm -hmm. Um, The big studies have told us pretty definitively that sexual communication, first of all, a lot of people struggle with, with sexual communication. They don't know how to do it. They worry about um, the words and the potential for the words to offend a partner, or they are embarrassed, especially if they're in a long-term relationship and they've never had sexual communication before. Um, and yet the research tells us the big, big studies tell us that having good sexual communication is actually a predictor of people who are sexually satisfied in the long term. So it's the kind of thing that it doesn't matter how short or how long your relationship is, start to communicate about sex. And uh, you can even refer to this podcast and, you know, you can say, oh, I I learned that actually communicating about sex is one way to help us have sexually satisfying sex in the long term. Can can we start to do that and, and work your way through what that actually looks like for you, whether it's talking about pleasure or the kinds of stimulation that you want or concerns that you have. Um, I do see lots of people in my practice who for years have had pain with sexual activity and have never told a partner and they continue to endure really terrible levels of, of pain. Um, and, and they don't tell a partner for fear of uh, making them feel unloved or undesirable or that sort of thing. So just can't emphasize just how strong and important that having sexual communication is. Maybe that's another myth that needs debunking is you shouldn't have to talk about sex. You should just do it because it's quote natural. Um, But yeah, communication is really key to that. Absolutely. Well, I love how you highlight that. It's regardless of the the length of the relationship. Is it a short-term relationship, long-term relationship? Regardless of that, if you're going to have more pleasurable and exciting sexual experiences, then it is better just to talk about it. But as you said, it's so hard to start that conversation. And, you know, my my background is in sexual health, but it's also in theater. So I always love to give people options to be like, you know, you can practice these conversations. Like you can rehearse. That's absolutely fine. Oh, yeah. And that. then also, yeah. And then also using again, like resources like this, or I send people to Scarletine quite often to being like, how do you use a resource out there? Like, I read this interesting article and like, that's your way in to start the conversation, right. trying to give people as many tools in their toolkit. So, you know, cause it, it doesn't start from being like, I never talk about sex to now I can openly communicate, but all the things I'm ready to do. It's like, no, like it can, it's a process. Like everything else in our life, you aren't expected to be great at it the first time that you have sex or engage in any type of activity. So it's okay to figure that out and learn as you go. And hopefully you should, right? (laughs) Yeah. Love that. Yeah. So we've talked a bit about this, especially with, with celebrities and their impact, but also on, on social media more generally. Like, it, it does have an impact, I think, on our perceptions of sexuality. I think particularly around how uh, women's sexuality is framed. And I think it's definitely changed over the last few years. I think some sense of empowerment, but also like hypersexualization, I think with the rise of, of TikTok and young folks being on TikTok as well. So what impact have, have you seen in your work on social media? Like what impact does that have on our understanding of sexuality and desire? Yeah, it's, I mean, social media for for anyone who it, was born after or sorry before 1980, <laughs> myself included, <laughs> we had to we had to and, and need to get on that bandwagon because that is how a lot of young people communicate. It is how they get their health information. It contributes a lot to even their sense of who they are and their identity in in good ways and and in not so good ways. Um, So I have loved seeing, even on TikTok, the number of academics and scientists that really use TikTok as a way of sharing the science. When we designed the Debunking Desire campaign, which uh, you can do hashtag Debunking Desire, it, it wasn't on TikTok because TikTok hadn't been as popular as it as it is right now as a vehicle for knowledge translation. So we we primarily used 
um, Twitter and YouTube and Instagram and Facebook to share the messages of, of our campaign. And we collected a lot of really careful metrics around how far and wide could we spread these scientific findings. So essentially what we did was we took distilled down scientific findings. So we would take a whole study, which, you know, in some cases may have taken five years to design and plan and do and analyze and publish. And we would distill that study down into like one sentence or even less than that one hashtag. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we found was uh, through the campaign, we had incredible reach with social media. And we compared the different mediums um, also by demographics. So we found that uh, we were really wanting to make sure that we could access people who were struggling with low desire. And we found that a combination of actually podcasts as well as Instagram was the most, and our Instagram lives were the most uh, effective way of spreading the reach. Um, In our eight-month campaign, we reached 54 countries around the world. Um, There were some countries that had a lot more reach than others, and it's because we uh, were fortunate to work with some influencers in those countries who shared our scientific uh, findings with their their, uh, platforms and their, their followers and that sort of thing. So my take-home message back to other academics and scientists is that, you know, don't just publish your scientific findings in a journal that no one will read. Consider social media. And, and if I were to design a campaign today, I probably would design it exclusively on TikTok. Um, so how could we use, you know, the combination of videos and short, snappy, catchy um, scenes and messages as as a way of getting the science uh, on sexual health and sexual desire out to as many people as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and and what you're indicating too is that in social media, like the impact and engagement is is different from platform to platform, and depending on who it's who it's coming from. And one of the really interesting things about TikTok is you can follow certain people, but you're just going to be shown things from people you don't follow, which I kind of love that so often our social media becomes so narrow and you're you're speaking into this, you know, for people who who all agree with you, right? Like my Instagram is almost purely sexual health educators. And so I'm like, oh, everyone is having open conversations about sex. Right. Well, I, I, know, I, I know that that's not true. I love this little idyllic version of, of the world. But I think that there's, it's, as I was saying before, it's so good to hear from you who, who in academia and in research, like you, you have this like really prestigious position to say, yeah, we should be using TikTok and amazing that we can publish in journals, but quite often if people don't have access to them. And that's a lot of my own work on this podcast is to, if we're going to do research informed advice. And I'm like, I have access to the research and researchers like yourself. Let's distill this work down so people can actually use it in their daily lives. And they don't have to sort through a paper and be like, I don't know what this means, or how does this actually impact me? So there's, there's so much, I think, a part of that planning as well. And it comes to researchers and those in academia to say, you know, knowledge translation should probably be part of our plan from the beginning and not an afterthought after we've completed the study itself. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So how do we now get academics and scientists on, on board with that? Because like I said, um, those of us who are of older generations where we relied on our kids to teach us social media and uh, helping us to get really comfortable. I think there's there's still a lot of fear around, you know, what what exactly social media is. And so because of that, folks might might not even have their own accounts. And so how do we demystify that and also spin it that actually this is an incredibly powerful tool for knowledge translation. Mm-hmm. So I know when I got onto it first, um, yeah, I had to ask my kids for like, how do you set up a profile? And mm-hmm. they said, don't worry, just lurk for a little while, see what people do, and you'll pick up pick up uh, <laughs> how to do this, which is exactly what I did. And yeah. um, sure glad that I did. Absolutely. Uh, so in terms of the resources I'm thinking about with Debunking Desire, and I love how it's just you know easily accessible on, on the website itself. So there's videos and there's podcasts and there's so many resources to meet folks uh, where they're at. And I know that in the video itself and a lot of your, your own work is talking about how are we managing stress and how do we use mindfulness, right? Which, which is a really important 
aspect, I think, to, to cultivate for people. So I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that in terms of, um, I think one of the, the things that really struck me in the video itself was stress and the concern that, you know, my partner may leave me because their needs aren't being met. And there's a lot to like unpack around that in terms of our sexual expectations. And then the stress of them leaving because we're not having sex with them does not exactly make us want to have more sex if we're like concerned about that. So can you talk to me a little bit about stress and maybe how mindfulness has become an avenue to maybe address um, low desire? Yeah. I mean, if you weren't stressed before um, the pandemic would have would have uh, forced stress into your and all of our lives. And the reality is, is that a lot of people struggle with chronic stress and chronic stress for a lot of folks might just be the, the daily grind, the to-do list that never ends struggling to just get through the items on your to-do list. Certainly with the pandemic, one of the things that we've seen is people are working longer hours or taking on more tasks And uh, there's concern that even now, as we move into a post-pandemic world, that there there probably will be a lingering legacy of chronic stress that uh, people are are really going to have to work hard to to undo. So we've known for a long time that stress negatively impacts sexual response and desire. It interferes with orgasm ability. It can distract you. It can, it can um, also contribute to a lot of myths that people have. If you're someone who struggles with anxiety in general, you're more likely to buy into these sex-related myths. Mm-hmm. So I've been very interested for years now in mindfulness as a tool to address the effects of stress on sexual health. And we've studied it now in quite a number of different populations. So survivors of gynecologic cancer, prostate cancer survivors, breast cancer survivors, survivors of uh, childhood sexual abuse, um, folks who are seeking treatment for low desire, uh, folks who struggle with premature ejaculation or erectile dysfunction, uh, university students who don't have sexual concerns. And the data, in my view, are pretty compelling that mindfulness works and it can be a powerful way of really addressing all of those different domains, the effects of stress on sex, the myths and inaccuracies that people have, the self-judgments that a lot of people, especially folks who struggle at, or, or have a sexual dysfunction, um, the kind of self-compassion training that we do with mindfulness directly addresses that. And what I think is really compelling, in, and we've shown this now in a few studies, um, is that the benefits of mindfulness on those facets of sexuality are retained a year later. And I think what happens is that people experience firsthand benefits. And so they're motivated to keep practicing mindfulness. Um, So we see those benefits persist over the long term. And you don't really see this with any other pharmaceutical treatment for sexual dysfunction at at all. Basically, once a person stops the, uh, the medication, you know, their sexual difficulties return. So I think it's, um, I mean, it should just be a core ingredient of all of our sexualities. How do we be non-judgmental? How do we be present? How do we set judgments and distractions aside, recognizing that those are really common? You know, you're engaging in sex and you suddenly have a thought about, did I turn the stove off or did I plan for, you know, is there milk in the fridge? Did I plan for my meeting tomorrow? Um, So even those kind of more benign day-to-day intrusions that do get in the way of sexual response, mindfulness um, is the tool to address all of them. So I, yeah, I can't, uh, I can't um, state more strongly just how critical I think mindfulness is in satisfying sex. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, your, your book is all about that as well of better sex through mindfulness, which I just, I, I think it's so fascinating because you think about that in terms of, you know, sexual desire. And so quite often with sexuality, we try and separate it off from other facets of our life of being like, oh, well, I'm struggling with my stress and that's affecting my sex life. But I'm not thinking about how it's also affecting my overall quality of life in lots of other different ways and how mindfulness, you know, as you've, as you've said, have shown to be so effective and very compelling research to show that it has a long-term impact as well. And 
I, I wonder too, it'll be interesting to see for the folks who are involved in those studies and practice mindfulness. I'm like, how is that impacting other aspects of your life? Because we know if we have higher sexual satisfaction or if we have, uh, we're able to be more present in our daily lives, quite often that can result in folks feeling generally more satisfied with their life, not just their sexual uh, lives, but with their lives in general. So how do you yeah, incorporate mindfulness to be like, oh, I want to make sure I have a, a better sex life. You're like, well, what about kind of life more broadly? We know, you know, being present could be something that is so powerful and evocative for, for all of us throughout different stages of our lives. Totally agree. <laughs> Couldn't have said it better <laughs> myself. Yeah, completely agree with you. I kind of want to transition now to be talking a bit more about like pleasure. And, it, and it's so interesting because I think there's a lot of discomfort still about talking about sexual pleasure, right? I think many of us and a lot of my work works intergenerationally, but with folks of lots of different ages in terms of the sex education we received or didn't receive, it was mainly focused on how do we make sure that there's no unintended pregnancies or sexually transmitted infections, but not actually looking at why do people engage in sex? And as you said before, lots of different reasons to feel closer to a partner. It's a part of our uh, routines or rituals that we that we do. So I I really love that in debunking desire. We're like, let's talk about pleasure and let's not focus on dysfunction because even that kind of change in mindset can be really important to kind of make that distinction. So how how do we start? I don't know, maybe as a scientist, but then also in your work in knowledge translation, how do we change that conversation? How do we start recognizing pleasure and consent essential to our uh, sexual expression beyond just these safe sex practices? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I think as early as possible. And this is why uh, comprehensive sexual education programs at the elementary school level that are, is developmentally appropriate and added to year by year um, is critical because lots of most people don't get that kind of um, solid sex education at home from their parents and parents have, have might struggle with their own taboos or their own struggles around sex. And so uh, there are thankfully excellent comprehensive sexual education guides in Canada. We have the um, sexual information and education uh, council of Canada, CCAN that produced an entire uh, curriculum around sex education. It's free. It's online. So, um, However, it is not uh, mandated in our school systems, but it is available for those school districts or individual schools or individual teachers who want to do it. It can also be available for parents themselves to download. And, and really, it's about introducing the discussion of pleasure at as early an age as possible. So when a young child is touching themselves um, I think maybe the knee jerk reaction uh, from a parent might be, oh, my gosh, don't do that. That's inappropriate rather than, oh, that feels good. And it's uh, you should know that, yes, when you touch that area, it gives you good feelings. That's called pleasure. Um, and then developmentally, depending on the age of the person, you might say, you know, we do that sort of thing in private, in the bedroom or in the bathroom. And then as the ages continue on, more explicit conversations about masturbation, um, et cetera. So, yeah, I really think that as early an age as possible so that people know that that is something that is available to them and that they, they, they if they have questions about it, um, they can ask or they can go to sources for trying to uh, explore how to how to discover their own sexual pleasure. Yeah, and it's 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 difficult as well. I think of of you know how do you help train teachers and parents people to have these conversations with with young folks because it's it's difficult. Like as a sexual health educator myself, when I go into a school and I only have an hour with a class, you know, and I have twelve or thirteen year olds asking me what's the right age to have sex and why do people have sex? And, you know, I'm drawing on the board and I'm drawing a vulva and that's the first time in their life they've heard of the clitoris. And I'm like, how, at what point? And I'm always looking to the teacher, like, how upset will you be with me if I leave them with this information? And then you almost feel bad as someone who drops in, shares the information. And then you're like, okay, I'll, I'll never see you again. And that's so hard as well, which I, maybe that brings back to the, 
social media aspect because a lot of people, if they don't feel like they're getting that support either at their school or from their parents, they're going to turn to online and, and quite often would, would maybe find like pornography and things like that and then realize, okay, like, is this what sex should be about? And you're like, so how do you, I don't know. I, I have so many like thoughts of how to unpack that, but it's, it's, I think it's difficult maybe as educators and researchers to say, how do I make sure that the impact and the conversations that we're having about sex don't feel like this is the only conversation we're going to have. And I'm not the only person that you can talk to about it, but maybe to fill up people with resources or I don't know if that's fully a question, Lori, but it's kind of a, an offering. Yeah. You know, and there are lots of really good resources that out, that are out there. And I think Leah, your emphasis on this being an ongoing conversation, because for a variety of reasons, uh, it might not be appropriate to have this conversation at a certain age or stage of your child's life, but maybe at a later stage of your child's life, just thinking about my own kids, you know, we've always talked really openly about sexuality. There's ways to do it. Um, Even at a very young age, you know, you can see, you can see dogs, uh, you know, climbing onto the backs of other dogs. And that can be an opportunity to say, yeah, that's, that's sexual activity. And, you know, and you can start out by talking about it in terms of procreation. And then of course, uh, developmentally appropriate talking about actually most of the times we have sex, it has nothing to do with procreation. It's purely about, about pleasure, but there are really good reasons. There's lots of books and lots of um, resources. I mentioned CCAN already as a, as a fabulous resource that's available to people also. And amazing, as you're saying before, that it's a, a free resource. I know I've definitely turned to it in creating my own lesson plans and figuring out how best to navigate these conversations, like you said, right. that are developmentally appropriate. Um, but it's always so interesting. You know, you go from a grade two class talking about, you know, our body parts, and then I'll go to my university class that I teach. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to talk about completely different things now. But in the same way, always, I guess, modeling that comfortability in talking about sexual health, I think that's maybe something that is the thread that continues throughout of being like, this isn't something that needs to be shameful. This is something that we should be able to talk about and be able to unpack in ways that are comfortable to us. It doesn't mean that everyone has to become a, a sexual health educator, but it means that having a better understanding of our bodies and our pleasures is something that's hopefully going to be helpful for all of us throughout our lives. Yeah. Completely agree. Lastly, I just want to ask you, like, is there Anything else that you that you want to share? I'm going to leave a whole bunch of resources uh, to your book, which are also debunking desire and the videos and, and links that you have there. Anything else in terms of desire? Because I've had a lot of um, yeah, a lot of my listeners be like, "How do I cultivate sexual desire in my relationship? How do I not feel like I'm broken?" So, any last uh, thoughts that you want to share? Yeah, you know, I think just the notion, Leah, that that desire can be cultivated that it's not something that you're either born with it or not born with it. Um, But I, and I think, you know, I've certainly been studying mindfulness as a way of cultivating desire and, and our research finds that it absolutely is something that can be uh, cultivated or elicited even in, in folks who maybe have struggled with it for a very, very long time. My book, better sex through mindfulness is really a review of the science on it. And I'm actually right now uh, just in the final stages of writing the the workbook guide on how to actually do that. So I've had so many people reach out to me after they read my book and they said, this is great. You've convinced me. Now, how do I actually do it? So in our research, we've developed treatment manuals that we use in our groups, and I'm uh, converting those into a single workbook that people can take home and work through and all the exercises and audio guides for mindfulness are in there. Um, so hopefully that will be a, a resource to people who are, who are interested. Um, also, you know, I'm a, just a strong proponent of mindfulness practice in general, like even outside of mindful sex. So lots of really good apps uh, that are available. You could even get onto YouTube and just do a search of, you know, body scan or, five minute, 10 minute, 15 minute, 30 minute, 45 minute meditation or mindfulness practice. And there's lots of uh, very freely available guides that that are available for, for people to use on their own. Um, and finally, I, I think it's something that needs to be practiced regularly. It's not kind of a one and done thing. It's something that we practice every single day. I myself integrate a mindfulness practice every single day into my workday. I usually take a break at the kind of halfway point of my day and do a do a meditation practice 
practice and find that I come back recharged, refocused. Um, so it is something that, you know, you don't need to be a meditator or a guru or a yogi. It's something that is available to all of us. And so would just really encourage your listeners to, um, if they haven't already, to to, to reach out and, and consider starting their own mindfulness practice. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate your time. And I I know listeners that uh, they're all going to be like, okay, so how do I get my hands on this workbook as soon as it's hot off the presses, right? Because yeah, having those activities and I, I love that combination of like, this is what the science says and let's give you the practical advice to actually implement that in your life. That's immensely valuable. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed this conversation today. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Love Doctor podcast. On the next episode of the podcast, I'm interviewing Chris Angel Murphy of Gender Sexuality Info. If you have a question for the show, send me a voice memo to thelovedoctorpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can send a voice message to me on Instagram at dr.leahtidy. Even if you don't send in a question, you can check me out on Instagram or Twitter. And if you like what you're hearing, hey, leave a review, share it with your friends, and let me know what you thought of this episode. Until then, folks, stay healthy, stay safe, stay consensual.